You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. At around the time this episode was made, a journalist asked Rod Serling what he wanted to say that he had not said on television before. And Rod Serling said, I'd like to make comment on what I think is social evil. This is the function of the writer in a society. I don't think you ever really could on television. I think you could do it in a kind of oblique way. But this is not to say that adult drama need always be a vehicle of social criticism. There should be a social platform for social comments, and what better one than a medium reaching so many people, which is so immediate and flexible. And in his final interview from March 4th, 1975, over 10 years after the Twilight Zone had ended, Rod Serling was asked the question, do you think you can say more about topics of social significance through a contemporary drama or more through the framework of science fiction and fantasy? And Sailing replied, I think you can say more obviously in the framework of an honest-to-Christ contemporary piece, so that you don't have to talk in parables, in symbolisms and the rest of it. But this is not to say that you can't make a point of social criticism using science fiction or fantasy as your backdrop. We did that on the Twilight Zone, but there's no room for that kind of subtlety anymore. The problems are so much with us that they have to be attacked directly. So Rod Sailing seemed to believe that the world had changed and that the time for hiding messages in plain sight, which was born out of necessity in the 50s and 60s, had passed. But we don't have to wait until the end of the Twilight Zone to see this transition happen. In season one, Rod Sailing took us to Maple Street and we watched a neighborhood tear itself apart after a few interventions from some aliens. But we can sit soundly in our living rooms and watch the monsters of Jew on Maple Street and nod our head in agreement that human beings behave in terrible ways sometimes and are prone to paranoia and scapegoating without having to examine whether whoever we affiliate ourselves with could be the cause of such a thing, because it was aliens who caused it. And then by the time season 3 comes around, we get to the shelter, and this time sailing is tapping into contemporary real-world events and fears, and the language does become a bit more pointed. But then, we get to season four. Examine the phenomenon of foreign control. You examine it, and you will note with absolute clarity that the lines lead directly to Palestine. They lead directly to Africa. They lead directly to the Vatican. Uh, um... So, so, there we are, there it is, there is a conspiracy, there's an insidious 
enveloping conspiracy, a conspiracy personified by the yellow man, by the black man, and by foreigners who come in and infiltrate into our economic structure. Oh, there'll come a morning. Yes, there will. There will come a morning when these men have taken over your home, they've taken over your daughters, and they'll be sitting right there on your doorstep. If anybody's sitting on your doorstep, buddy, he's a man in a white coat. You better just go with him quietly. You think that's pretty funny, don't you? You think it's pretty funny that your country can be sold out? That they can sell out your flag and your birthrights? You think that's funny, huh? Tonight, Rod Sailing takes the gloves off. And as we watch this street erupt into violence after that speech, we're reminded that this is how the monsters are due on Maple Street ended. But it's how he's alive begins. Portrait of a Bush League Fuhrer named Peter Vollmer, a sparse little man who feeds off his self-delusions and finds himself perpetually hungry for want of greatness in his diet. And like some goose-stepping predecessors, he searches for something to explain his hunger and to rationalize why a world passes him by without saluting. The something he looks for and finds is in a sewer. In his own twisted and distorted lexicon, he calls it faith, strength, truth. But in just a moment, Peter Vollmer will ply his trade on another kind of corner, a strange intersection in a shadow land called the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 24th, 1963, written by Rod Serling and directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Now we spoke at the beginning of the season about why Rod Serling wasn't doing in-scene narrations at this point, and why often his narrations were a little vague and patchy because he did these in batches because he was teaching away at the time, and they couldn't predict where an episode might actually change in the edit. And while I would have dearly loved to see Rod Serling step out of the shadows in this scene as a kind of counterpoint to the person who would step out of the shadows later on, I think with what we do get here, he is on fire. There are no vagaries here, Serling is going for the jugular. And this joins the ranks as one of his best opening monologues for me. Our director tonight is Stuart Rosenberg, and this is his second Twilight Zone, and we haven't seen him since season one's I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. So I won't go into a full bio because I imagine we talked about him back then, but his body of work really says that he is the kind of quintessential director who learned his trade on the small screen and then transitioned to a decent amount of success on the big screen. He only actually has 48 credits to his name, but within that are multiple episodes of things like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Untouchables, and then he went on to direct movies like Cool Han Luke and The Amityville Horror. So I don't think it's an accident that this episode looks really good. This street scene at the beginning, I think if you look, you can see that it's probably a large backlot set but it's still shot really well. There's a great use of the space with these big wide open shots that make it quite cinematic. So when you compare that to something like Valley of the Shadow that we saw recently, where 
A lot of the outside filming was so close up to the buildings that you don't really get any sense of the space. You can really see the difference here and it's no wonder that Rod Serling was considering making a feature film version of this. But we'll talk more about that later on. You're a good friend, Ernst. You're a good friend. A man does what he believes in. A man usually does. Well, I believe certain things. Is that a fact? Yes, well, wh what difference does it make if we don't think alike about the same things? I mean, we're friends. You've known me since I was a kid. When you were a little kid, Peter, and I used to find you crying at my door late at night, I could pity you then. And now? What do you think? Now you peddle hate on street corners, as if it were popcorn. It's not hate. It's a, it's a point of view. It's a philosophy. Ah, I know the philosophy. I know it quite well. Nine years in a place called Dachau. You know who put me there? Peter Walmer. A lot of Peter Walmers. Frustrated men, sick men, angry men. But the result, the effect, never mind the cause. Twelve million bodies in shallow graves. And it all started with young men in uniform talking on street corners. So after the violent confrontations of the opening scenes, Peter goes to stay with his friend Ernst, who is a kind of father figure to him. And this relationship between Peter and Ernst seems to be one of the things that is criticised in several reviews for this episode. Now Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion is a bit lukewarm on the episode as a whole, and he singles out this relationship specifically. He says, unfortunately he's alive lacks a feeling of reality. The characters are all stick figures and do not seem at all based on actual people. From the beginning we are supposed to accept that Peter Vollmer, played by Dennis Hopper, is deeply committed to the fascist organisation of which he is the leader, while also accepting his claim that the only thing in the world he'd ever loved is an elderly concentration camp survivor. And to be honest, I think it's a fair point. If this old Jewish man was the closest thing that he had to family and was so important to him, then why does he then go on to become a Nazi, the kind of complete opposite of what Ernst is about? Now, I suppose you can rationalise it to a degree because people who are raised in good homes can turn to criminality and people who are raised in violent and dysfunctional homes can go on to be good people and lead good lives. Teenagers rebel against their parents and do the exact opposite of what they're told to do. So I guess you can try and rationalise it like that. Does it really fit in? I don't think so completely. I think it's more out of convenience for the story than anything, but I can kind of go with it because what it does give us is the opportunity for Dennis Hopper to play his part with this bit of conflict in him. He seems to even be a little bit ashamed when he's talking to Ernst when he goes to his apartment. 
so it does give the character at least a little bit of shade rather than just being this out and out monster. So let's talk about our star for the moment, Dennis Hopper. He would have been in his mid-twenties by this point, but he was still quite a baby-faced actor, so he could probably play younger if he needed to. And we all know who Dennis Hopper is and what he went on to do. He was an extremely prolific actor with over 200 credits to his name. But who was he at this point in these pre-Easy Rider years? Now, he was born in 1936 and he made his screen debut in 1954. And he was prolific from the get-go and he had almost 40 credits to his name even at this point in his career. And he would generally jump from television show to television show, but there was the occasional film role too, like a small part in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, and also another James Dean movie, Giant, which also starred Earl Holliman. So I'm not sure at this point whether he was the hard-drinking, hard-smoking, counterculture type that he would become in the future, but what he was, was an incredibly hard-working and intense actor, and I think we can see that here. But is he successful at it? Well, Mark Zickery doesn't think so, and he says, Dennis Hopper lacks the personal magnetism to be believable as a charismatic leader. Speeches which are intended to be hypnotic seem merely shrill, although the audience is clearly supposed to be mesmerised. And Rod Serling's reaction to Dennis Hopper is quite interesting too, because in his promo, he says, you'll see a performance by Dennis Hopper in this particular program that even from my rather close perspective, strikes me as an exceptional one. But whether he was masking his true feelings or his opinion changed with time, a quote in Nick Parisi's book from Rod Serling years later sheds a little more light on it. He says, I thought it was one of the best written scripts, completely pissed away by the performance of Dennis Hopper. It was the most uncontrolled, undisciplined performance. The role took considerably more thespic talent than the young man had at the time. It needed a very restrained performance, and Dennis started to cry in real one, and there was simply emotionally no place to go from there. Now far be it from me to disagree with the great man, but he obviously had something in mind which Hopper didn't fulfill for him. But I actually really like what Dennis Hopper is doing here. He's playing Peter as this big, confused kid, and he's a ball of frustration and anger. And we hear that as a child, he grew up with a drunken father, and as he says, a mother with no marbles in her head. And he would end up on Ern's doorstep. So he grew up in violence and anger, and that's what he's filled with now. But he's looking for belonging, he's looking for validation, and he's trying to fit into something. But unfortunately, the thing he's chosen to fit into is the worst thing imaginable. So I actually think Hopper nails that part of the role really well. And if Mark Zickery thinks he lacks magnetism, I would say if that's true, he makes up for it in sheer conviction, especially when he's been given a lesson on how to deliver a speech by a very familiar figure. How do you move a mob, Mr. Fulmer? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? I don't know how. 
join them first, Mr. Falcon. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. And if they are angry, Mr. Volmar, if they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence, Mr. Volmar, is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. Say to them things like, things like, they call us hate mongers. They say we're prejudiced. They say we're biased. They say we hate minorities. Minorities. Understand the term, neighbors. Minorities. Should I tell you who are the minorities? Should I tell you? We! We are the minorities! Notice that before we see Hitler for the first time in the shadows, Peter lays down and closes his eyes, and when he opens them, that's when he hears him outside, so is he dreaming this? We'll keep an eye on it as we go, but I think it's very much suggesting that Peter is the only one who can see him. And it's kind of odd to say that I like the dialogue in a scene where Hitler's talking, but I think what I mean is it really sells what this is about. Hitler's influence, the insidious nature of it. But as I was watching it, it occurred to me that, although I do know a fair bit of Second World War history, I had seen actors delivering speeches in English as Hitler, and I had seen Hitler giving speeches in German, but I'd never actually studied the content of them, or actually heard one in English. So if this is what Serling is analysing and deconstructing, I kind of wanted to see what he was getting at, what was it about Hitler's speeches that he was actually looking into. So if we keep in mind that last scene where he first meets Peter, and then actually mirror that with some actual passages from his speeches, you can kind of see where Serling was coming from. So in a speech on November 10th, 1933, Hitler says, I have grown up from amongst yourselves. Once I myself was a workman. For four and a half years I served amongst you in the war. I speak now to you whom I belong, with whom I still feel myself to be united, and for whom, in the last resort, I fight. I wage that fight for the millions of our honest, industrious, working, creative people. I was in my youth a worker as you are, through industry, through learning, and, I may say, also through hunger, I slowly worked my way up. But in my innermost being, I have always remained that which I once was. So here he is, putting himself on the same level as the people, ready to make their anger his, and his anger theirs. But what was interesting to me is some of the stuff that Rod Serling doesn't actually touch on, and I kinda wish he had. In his speech on April 9th, 1938, he said, I believe that it was God's will to send a boy from here into the Reich, to let him grow up, to raise him to be the leader of the nation, so as to enable him to lead back his homeland into the Reich. 
So Hitler was very publicly allying himself with God, and if God is on your side, then how can you be wrong? But actually, behind closed doors, Hitler had a very different view. His confidant Albert Sia said, Amid his political associates in Berlin, Hitler made harsh pronouncements against the church, yet he conceived of the church as an instrument that could be useful to him. And Joseph Goebbels wrote in his diaries that, though Hitler was a fierce opponent of the Vatican and Christianity, he forbids me to leave the church for tactical reasons. So this is all part of his arsenal. And then when we go on to his speech on September 6, 1938, he said, We Germans can today speak with justice of a new awakening of our cultural life, which finds its confirmation not in mutual compliments and literary phrases, but rather in positive evidences of cultural creative force. German architecture, sculpture, painting, drama, and the rest bring today documentary proof of a creative period in art, which for richness and impetuosity has rarely been matched in the course of human history. And although the Jewish democratic press magnates in their effrontery even today seek brazenly to turn these facts upside down, we know that the cultural achievements of Germany will, in a few years, have won from the world respect and appreciation far more unstinted even than that which they now accord to our work in the material field. The buildings which are arising in the Reich today will speak a language that endures, a language above all more compelling than the Yiddish gabblings of the democratic international judges of our culture. So we can see here how he's starting to build this stuff up. He allies himself with the people, he allies himself with God, and he pours scorn on the press who oppose him. So although Serling doesn't tackle all of these aspects, to have him deconstruct Hitler's method and cut through it and expose it is a fascinating aspect to this episode for me. So by the time Peter starts to use this method and build on it himself, the effect is quite chilling. Neighbours, They call us hate mongers. They say we're prejudiced. They say we're biased. They say that we hate the minorities. The minorities. Understand the term, neighbors. The minorities. Shall I tell you who the minorities are? We, 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 we are the minorities. Because patriotism is a minority. Because love of country is the minority. Because to live in a free white America seems to be of a minority opinion. What I really like here is that the crowd at Peter's speech really pitched their performances well. They're not entirely convinced by what he's saying yet, but there's a sense of, well, maybe he's got a point about some of this stuff, 
So Peter is gradually getting them on his side. And when that happens, it's then that he can start to sew in some of the more confrontational things that he struggles with at the beginning of the episode, where he's directly pointing the finger at people in the crowd. And then as time goes on, there's less of a need to be so insidious with the speeches, and Hitler's January 1939 speech, called The Jewish Question, illustrates this. Because now, he's brazen enough to say, Today I will once more be a prophet. If the international Jewish financiers in and outside Europe should succeed in plunging the nations once more into a world war, then the result will not be the Bolshevization of the earth and this victory of Jewry, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. Look, I'm not gonna wait much longer, understand? If I don't get paid, you don't have the hall tomorrow night. Gibbons, will you cool it? Can't you see we're busy? Look, I'm not gonna wait. I'm not gonna wait another five minutes! I want it settled now. I told you. No dough, no rental. No dough, no use of the hall tomorrow night. I'm not running this place just because it gives me pleasure. What seems to be the problem? Oh, this is a very hungry man here, Pete. He gotta have his shekels, gotta have his little old money. I told you guys, you were three weeks back in the rent. You said you'd give it to me a week ago, and all I did get was cigarette butts on the floor. So here we are at about the 20 minute mark, almost at the point where a non-season four episode will be coming to a close. And so far, there's nothing that I would take out of this I think every scene has its place, every scene has a purpose, and justifies its running time. Now initially I did think that this scene where the owner of the hall where they do their rallies is asking for money to pay for their rent of it is quite superfluous. But then I thought, is Serling making a point here? Because Hitler ends up paying for the hall, so is Serling saying that we need to look beyond the person who is up on the podium making that speech. You can sit and listen to them and try and understand what their motives are, but what are the motives of the people who are facilitating it for them? What are the motives of the people who are bankrolling the whole enterprise, but stay in the shadows? Now, I have some suggestions. I will continue to give you advice, but there is a matter of great importance that must be taken care of. What is it? An expedient, Mr. Vollmer. Oh, you might call it a, uh, a cause célèbre. Something to cement the organization together. I don't understand. A martyr. The organization needs a martyr. A martyr? How do you find a martyr? You do not find one, Mr. Vollmer. You choose one. So as we come to the second act, here is Hitler's next suggestion, the creation of a martyr to speed things up. And at about this point I was starting to think that maybe this part was a bit superfluous too, because teaching someone to give speeches is one thing, but getting them to murder one of their own to create a martyr is another. But it is actually derived somewhat from real events in that a member of the original Nazi paramilitary wing, the SA, by the name of Horst Wessel, was killed by two members of the German Communist Party. So he wasn't actually killed by other Nazis, 
but he was then made a martyr. His funeral was attended by the top members of the Nazi party and his name was used in propaganda and the song that he'd written the lyrics to even became the song of the Nazi party. But does it work in this story? I'm not 100% certain that it does because I get that Peter is now emboldened by the success he's had in public speaking and this group are getting nastier by the minute but the ease with which they murder one of their own is kind of sudden. Personally, I would have liked it if this portion explored that religious aspect of Hitler. The fact that he spoke of God and prayer for his own ends, not because he believed it. It was a way for him to get his foot in the door. And Hitler actually believed that persecuting the church, early on before he was at the height of his powers, would actually strengthen the church and not really serve his purpose. But actually, the Catholic Church weren't fooled by this and they were fiercely critical of the Nazi party and their racist policies. And in time, that persecution that Hitler had refrained from in the beginning did come. And many Christians too found themselves victims of the Nazis. Hitler invoked the name of God when it benefited him but then cast it aside when it had served its purpose. So I think that instead of martyrdom, this might have been an interesting thing for the episode to explore, where perhaps Hitler tells Peter that if he gives the impression that he has God on his side, then he had this umbrella over all of his wrongdoing. But then again, maybe I'm forgetting the time that this was made, and of course, the network would get very twitchy, around that kind of subject matter. So while I do get the use of the martyr aspect of it, I guess another problem with it is that the person they choose, the character of Nick, is a bit of a nobody. And I get that this is all smoke and mirrors so Peter will use whatever he can for his own ends. But Horst Wessel was actually someone who carried some weight in the early Nazi party as leader of the Berlin wing of the SA. But Nick is a bit of a nobody to these people. Why should they care that he's died? A man of honor died last week. A decent, courageous fighter for the cause of freedom. Gave his life. He gave his life for us. Some skulking assassin murdered him but friends and neighbors and co-fighters nick bloss did not die in vain they stilled his great heart but they could not stifle his memory they could not obliterate his courage they could not wipe away his honor. He lives in you and he lives in me. He lives deep in the gut of every human being who wants to see the United States of America be free. Now watching this episode, it doesn't feel like any other episode of the Twilight Zone that we've seen before in many different ways. And it's almost like he's trying to fit a much bigger thing into a Twilight Zone shaped hole. 
And Martin Grimes Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that Rod Serling and Herbert Hirschman discussed the possibility of actually doing a theatrical film version of this as well because too much footage had been filmed. And Rod Serling said, I have no idea of CBS policy on this, nor am I very sure in my own mind as to just how appropriate this film would be for theatre release. I do think, however, that if the rest of the footage is on par with the opening sequence that I saw, I'd hate to see valuable footage cut away and made irreplaceable. So could we see this stretched out into a feature? You know, it's an interesting question considering that every time we come to an episode of season 4, we ask that question, does it justify its length? You know what, and I think this one could be a feature, it does look good, and I think Sailing's writing makes it the sharpest episode of the season so far, and I think there are ways that it probably could be expanded. And apparently Sailing wanted to introduce a hero of sorts, an opposite to Peter in the form of an FBI agent who was investigating the group. So instead of agents just turning up at the end, that would have been a thread throughout it. And I kind of wish that Sailing's plan had come off, it would have made for a fascinating comparison. And who knows, maybe a whole different line of movie Twilight Zones. That's a bad kid, that one. Used to be, used to be people would laugh at him. But lately he gets the crowd. And not many people laugh either. You've known him a long time, haven't you? Since he was a child. A silent little boy with very little to say. I've seen it before. I've seen it all before. That was another time, Mr. Gantz. Another place. Another kind of people. That doesn't go here. That's what we said, too. There were brown scum. Temporary insanity, part of the passing scene, too monstrous to be real. So we ignored them or laughed at them because we couldn't believe that there were enough insane people to walk alongside of them. And then one morning, the country woke up from an uneasy sleep. And there was no more laughter. That Peter Valmers had taken over. So this character of Ernst Gantz is played beautifully by Ludwig Danath, and he was born in 1900 in Vienna, Austria. And of course, growing up in that time and place, he had first-hand experience of the real-world events that this story is riffing on. And he was a famous actor on stage in Vienna and Berlin, but he left Nazi Germany in 1933 and spent time in Switzerland and England before landing in Hollywood. And he paid his dues with small roles in films before building up to bigger things. And often because of his accent, he himself would play Nazis. And one of the things that jumped out to me in his bio is that he starred in an episode of a show called Joseph Schildkraut Presents, 
obviously hosted by that other Twilight Zone import, Joseph Schildkraut, from Death's Head Revisited. And Douglas Brody, in his book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, the 50th Anniversary Tribute, has some quite interesting things to say about this character. And it kind of feeds into this question of how can he still associate with Peter, considering the road that he's on. And he says, Gantz represents not only the Jews, but all people victimized by Hitler. A smart, well-read, gentle soul, Gantz allows Volmer to enter his humble apartment, providing a washcloth for the beaten man. This unexpected turn of events raises, he's alive above the level of anti-Nazi diatribe, as does what appears next. Sailing creates a sense of sorrow for Volmer on the part of Gantz, and via that character's concern within the audience. If the wonderful Gantz has any weakness, it's his Christ-like inability to turn any person away, even one as offensive to Gantz's sensibilities as Volmer. In Sailing's vision though, this doesn't constitute a weakness. Gantz might be thought of as characteristic of all Zone's heroes, his saviour-like quality derives not from extending a hand of friendship to admirable people, which is easy to do, but to the worst. No person, however horrific, exists completely apart from the community of men. There is no question that Volmer is as bad as a person can be. Even he can't grasp why Gantz remains a loyal friend, despite Volmer's condemnation of Jews as stereotypical Shylocks and Volmer knows from first-hand experience that this isn't true. He's been extended the most wonderful of all human gifts by Gans, unconditional love. I want to ask you a few questions. You just answer yes and no to the following. Do you want the United States of America to remain free? Yes! Do you want your homes infected? With the vermin from foreign shores? No! Now listen to this one. You want a bunch of mongrels to come over here? Go on, Mr. Volmer. You were saying? I can tell them what you were saying. I've heard it before. I've heard it a thousand times before. In Munich, in Berlin, on a hundred different street corners. It was drivel then, and it is drivel now. You've got to stop, Ernst. And what is this one here? The new model? A 1963 Führer right off the assembly line? Well, this one is not so new. He's not so fresh. This one is nothing but a cheap copy. Peter, we've got to do something about it. We're losing the audience. Let me get rid of him. Let me get rid of him. Just leave me alone. Well, let me tell you about this one. About the breed, the species. They're all alike. They are all alike. Problem children. Sick, sad neurotics who take applause like a needle. Now I'm going to kind of skip through to the end here because one of the most interesting things about the episode is the reaction to it. 
So it is no surprise to anyone that the man in the shadows is Hitler. I mean, who else is it going to be? And I don't think sailing was really meaning for it to be a surprise to us, the audience. Maybe it was just meant to have a bit of impact when he finally came from the shadows. You see, the way it is, I knew him. I knew the old man. Is that a fact, Mr. Former? I've known him for so long. He cheapened you, Mr. Former. He tore you to pieces. Your voice is that of a lion. Your instincts are those of a rabbit. And you, what are you? You direct traffic from the darkness. You plan the battles and you're never there when they're fought. Why don't you come out in the light? Why don't you come up here alongside of me? Why don't you give me a name and a face and a reason why? Mr. Fulmer, I was making speeches before you could read them. I was fighting battles when your only struggle was to climb out of a womb. I was taking over the world when your universe was a crib. And as for being in darkness, Mr. Fulmer, I invented darkness. So by the end of our story, Peter confronts Ernst for humiliating him and ends up killing him after Ernst tells him some more home truths. I know you, Peter. I know you. From a ravaged little boy wanting love to a torn man craving respect, identity, pride. Peter, I don't fear you. So you may do what you have in mind at any time you wish. For this last one reminder to you. You can never kill an idea with a bullet, Peter. Never. Once again, I love Sailing's writing here because the hate and the nastiness that Peter is putting out is really just a reflection of what's inside him. The insecurities, the need for love, and because the boy Peter didn't get those things, then the man Peter becomes warped and tries to fill that gap in himself with power, dominion over others, and when he kills Ernst, his transformation is complete. But unfortunately for him, he had been investigated by the FBI because of the death of Nicholas, who they had set up to be the martyr early on, and Peter gets shot when he's trying to escape. And always want to be authentic, Martin Grams Jr. says that Sailing contacted the DeForest Research Group asking for information concerning the laws involved if an FBI agent warned a neo-Nazi, and whether the FBI can investigate an organisation involved with white supremacy. So let's get to that reaction because one of the most interesting things about this episode is that through the mists of time, we view the Twilight Zone as a kind of safe show because we either weren't there or don't remember or weren't exposed to the kind of reactions that the episodes got. But He's Alive is an example of how it's not only modern shows that get backlash when they tackle social issues. 
In the August 1986 issue of Twilight Zone magazine, a writer called Hal Erickson wrote quite a lengthy article about He's Alive, and in it, he claims that after this episode aired, the show received over 4,000 angry letters, which he describes as hate mail. And Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic quite rightly points out that Hal Erickson never cited any source for this, and Grams himself says that he personally sifted through about 1,800 fan letters from the five years that the show was on, and only 12 specifically mention this episode. So, I think it's fair to say that there must have been more letters than just 12, you know? I would imagine even just any run-of-the-mill episode got more than 12 letters, so I really think there must be more letters somewhere or they were disposed of. Now that's not to say that Hal Erickson was right, he really should have quoted his source, but I think common sense really says that there were more than 12. But Erickson's article does include an interesting cross-section of mail on the subject. One person wrote, While there was much of the piece that I was disappointed in, I thought its central message did come through, and they called it a great public service. But then Erickson goes on to write that some viewers' attitudes were rather unclear. Another person wrote, It was horrible. The kind of hatred propaganda promoted by a vengeful minority, of which we have seen so much recently. And Erickson says, was the viewer offended by the fictional Nazis, or was it Serling's condemnation of those Nazis that was offensive? And then Erickson goes on, and he says, the angry letter writers made their opinions all too clear. Within a week after the telecast, Serling and his staff received 4,000 letters, for which the designation hate mail was much too mild. Communications were received from the followers of the prominent anti-Semite, Gerald L.K. Smith, from the disciples of faith healer politicizer Billy Joe Hargis, from such august concerns as the White Citizens Councils and Christian anti-communism schools. Excuse my language in this part, but he says Serling and company were addressed as commie bastards by some, while other literary wits characterized the Twilight Zone people as c**k lovers and c**k lovers. An organization called Geopolitics offered the novel suggestion that Jews should be put back in the gas ovens and shipped back to Africa. So it's all very strong stuff and we'll come back to that in a moment. But after I watched He's Alive, I looked up the list of Twilight Zones that had come before it, trying to identify how long it had been since we got such a pointed and hard-hitting episode. Now 11 episodes ago we got 4 o'clock, which certainly had shades of the kind of political aspect of it. And then I guess 14 episodes before that, we had Equality of Mercy, which was quite controversial in that it had quite a sympathetic depiction of Japanese soldiers. But the thing is, you keep going on up the list, and even when we get to things like The Shelter and Maple Street, and even Death's Head Revisited, you realise that Rod Serling has never took the gloves off in the Twilight Zone the way he does here. And I think it really is true that where Maple Street ends, He's Alive begins. But the episode itself is not without its problems. 
We've discussed the relationship with Peter and Ernst, and that does take a bit of rationalization, but I can get past it. Now, while I do think the use of Hitler is fascinating, I mean, can you imagine a show today using a device like this? Talk about on the nose, but it works, and the figure of Hitler in the shadows, especially in high definition where he's this inky black space, is quite a chilling one. So it's kind of a shame that he ever steps out of the shadows for me because from the moment Peter closes his eyes just momentarily at the beginning of the episode, there is this suggestion that he is the only one who sees him. So my interpretation is that this isn't actually Hitler in his physical form. It's really just the shadow of Hitler's legacy, his ideas. But when Hitler takes the podium in the light later on, I think it loses what makes it all so intriguing and potent earlier on. Especially when Hitler in the episode is stood in front of a picture of the actual Hitler. And while the actor Kirk Conway does a great job, and on his own you accept him as Hitler, when you put him next to a picture of the real one, it just kind of breaks the illusion. And I guess it also beggars belief a little that this neo-Nazi Peter who regularly stands and gives speeches in front of a picture of Hitler, is so surprised when the man in the shadows is Hitler. If anyone was going to recognise him, Peter would. Now when this was made, the network didn't want to show the use of the swastika throughout it, so Peter's organisation uses the symbol of the torch in the hand instead. And this is fine, but I also think that maybe they should have dispensed with the big image of Hitler, behind Peter's podium too. You know, it's fine to portray a neo-Nazi group in a story like this, but it's only about 20 years after World War II. Would the American people in these scenes so readily sit in front of an image of Hitler so soon after the Second World War? But I suppose I've always said that I forgive the Twilight Zone being absolutely real-world authentic in all things, because these are fables and this is Rod Serling's darkest fable yet. And while of course it shares subject matter with Death's Head Revisited, I would actually group this more with I Am The Night Color Me Black from the fifth season. They are hard episodes to watch at times because there's so much ugliness on display. And the Rod Serling who had to write about robots saying things because he couldn't write a politician saying them is gone. So the idea that the Twilight Zone had to sweeten messages to make them palatable for people is shattered here. This is Rod Serling unfiltered. This is Rod Serling laying it out for us, even though mention of social issues like this did come with considerable backlash. But Rod Serling earned this. He was the man who had something to say and had to sneak it under the noses of the public for four years. He had paid his dues, and with shows like Maple Street and The Shelter, he had laid the groundwork to be able to tell a story where the Nazi wasn't a robot, where the location wasn't some alien world, and he destroys any notion that the Twilight Zone is just fantasy entertainment and it doesn't have a point of view. Now I personally would put this in the top tier of the Twilight Zone, Structurally, it's not perfect, and there are nitpicks here and there. 
but just seeing Rod sailing let loose like this is exhilarating. It's more akin to something like his Playhouse 90 episode, A Town Has Turned to Dust, than anything else we've ever seen in the Twilight Zone. Dennis Hopper is electrifying a perfect blend of this lost, confused boy who looks to fill the hole within himself in the worst way. He's the one that people laughed at the joke that went too far. Ludwig de Nath, as Ernst, says Rod Serling's words like a world-weary poet, and both Serling's intro and outro are two of the most potent that he's ever spoken in the show. And in his final outro, he doesn't even say the words The Twilight Zone, just to ram home the point that this could rear its head at any time. Now I'm going to give Rod Serling the last word on this one because though this is his most pointed and hard-hitting Twilight Zone yet, when a newspaper editorial accused him of making this to attack a modern mainstream political party, Serling's response shows that even though a show has social commentary and it's going after a particular target, that its message is actually more universal than it's given credit for. Because, as Hal Erickson wrote in his article, Serling's attackers missed the point entirely. To them, Volmer's phony anti-communism was proof positive of Rod Serling's actual communism, and they couldn't be more wrong. So the article in the Indianapolis Star went like this. Nobody can disagree with whatever scorn one wants to heap on Adolf Hitler. Yet we are a little puzzled as to the relevance of this production to contemporary events. Indeed, this attempt to establish relevance struck us as more than a little cockeyed. For example, the young Nazi talked a great deal about anti-communism. He also had a lot to say about freedom. That combination of sentiments, as it happens, has very little to do with authentic Nazism. But the combination of anti-communism and freedom does fit one recognisable political grouping, modern American conservatism. In fact, the speech of the young Nazi, in its purely political aspects, sounded a great deal more like Barry Goldwater, a man of Jewish lineage, than it did like Hitler. The impression left by the programme was that people who warn against communism and people who talk about getting back our freedom are probably secret Nazis. For our part, we think the brilliant news analysts who perceived the menace of Nazism in a world strangled by communism have missed the mark. After all, the Second World War has been over a mere 18 years. Why concentrate on a menace as recently past as that? What this country really needs in the year 1963 is to be educated concerning the dangers of World War I. If enough programmes are conducted on this subject, and enough commentary floated suggesting that anti-communism are agents of the German Empire, maybe we can alert the public to the menace of the Hun. And Rod Serling responded, If your editorialist could have read a fraction of the mail received after our production of He's Alive, I wonder if he would persist in his thesis that communism is a singular enemy and combating it should be our comparably singular preoccupation. In a sense, we heard from the whole roster of the far right 
and it's quite a batting order. Their stock in trade indeed, their reason d'etre is anti-communism. Like your editorialist, they seem to feel that racism, bigotry and hatred should be of little concern to us in view of the fact that communists are trying to take over our government, invade our schools and subvert our institutions. While association, however gratuitous and accidental, is to the far right practically a guarantee of guilt, I submit to a more moderate view and choose to believe that your editorial writer is well motivated and quite rightfully dislikes communism and is concerned with subversion. But I submit to him that we have other enemies no less real, no less constant and no less damaging to the fabric of democracy. It's when we hear denials that these people exist and that their poison is being disseminated and that any comment to this effect is irrelevant I wonder if the Twilight Zone isn't something more than a television idea. Where will he go next? This phantom from another time, this resurrected ghost of a previous nightmare. Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, Florida, Vincennes, Indiana, Syracuse, New York. Any place, every place. Where there's hate, where there's prejudice, where there's bigotry. He's alive. He's alive so long as these evils exist. Remember that when he comes to your town. Remember it when you hear his voice speaking out through others. Remember it when you hear a name called, a minority attacked, any blind, unreasoning assault on a people or any human being. He's alive because through these things, we keep him alive. So there we go. Rod Serling showing us that just because you voice your disagreements with one thing, it doesn't mean that you are the complete opposite. Of the spectrum so so a lesson for everyone no matter where you are on the political landscape i think okay i'm not going to dwell on world events at the moment because no matter where you turn it is there i will just say i hope everyone is safe and well and i wish you the very best i'm going to thank stella daniels who's just joined over on patreon stella thank you for joining and thank you for your support so if you want to get your thoughts onto the show about any of the episodes we've discussed so far in season four or the next episode in season four which we'll find out about at the end of the show then email your clip of around five minutes or less to tom at the twilight zone podcast.com and i will play it on the air okay so let's go over to some friends of the show who have some thoughts on season four Hey Tom and listeners, Zach Moore here uh, with my thoughts catching up on season four so far. You know, the the fourth season, I think like everybody here, is the season I'm least familiar with. Uh, It just happened to be that way based off, you know, wherever you were living and however they were showing the Twilight Zone. Uh, I became familiar with them through the the marathons on the Sci-Fi Channel here in America. Uh, My family was always one to record things on VHS off TV, so in between marathons we could revisit these episodes, but... uh, yeah, being the, being an hour long, it's it's such an anomaly to have an hour long season in the middle of a half hour long series. You know, I, mean, I can't think of any show that that changed length that way, nor can I think of any show that went back to its original length. So it's very unique and a very interesting oddity, and and I'm glad it's a, it's, it's I'm glad it happened. It's just this un, it's this unique wrinkle in the history of the Twilight Zone, but 
starting off with In His Image, you know, that, that's really one of my favorite episodes from the fourth season. You know, I find the whole, you know, uh, robot who thinks he's a person, and but then the person who created him takes over his life. That's an interesting story, I think. And, and I really think uh, George Grizzard did a great job with both parts, especially when we first meet uh, Walter Ryder and uh, how he's, you know, he's like, you're drunk a little bit, right? I mean, he really does... Uh, played a different way where you see these people obviously look identical but they act very different so um, and being the Star Trek fan I am I couldn't help but think about Star Trek The Next Generation where you have the character of Data who everyone knows and loves obviously uh, but he looks identical to his creator although he has you know uh, the white skin and the gold eyes but other than that uh, physically he is a duplicate of his creator Noonien Sung and then he has two uh previous versions of Data, B4 and Lore, who we meet over the course of the series and the movies, who also look like Noonie and Soong. So that, of course, made me think of, you know, this episode where the creator, uh, Walter Ryder, he has two previous Alan Talbots, and then he has the Alan Talbot that was successful. Um, interesting that he, he gave him a different name, but he wanted to make a better version of himself. You know, I mean, he did never intended to take over his life, right? That was never the intention, but that's what he did. So at the end, you know, when he tells his uh, his fiance that he'll explain it one day, how how long is it going to take him to tell her that hey, actually I'm Walter Ryder, uh, but hey, good news, I'm rich and I'm an inventor and I have a really nice house. So you know, so those are things you think about. But I think the episode handled that all uh, very well and very delicately uh, as they could. So yeah, I, I just really enjoyed that one. You know, I mean, yes, and you guys talked about it on the podcast where there's been so many um, you know, robot stories these days right i mean like ex machina right for example it's the, it's the most recent really good one that i i can think of with this whole like man machine where does it start where does it end identity stuff fascinating stuff there's even a scene in ex machina where uh the main character uh goes up to like the mirror and thinks he's an, a robot maybe you know and that you know made me think of this as well when after alan talbot discovers he's a, he's a robot he does the same thing uh but yeah no a really good episode of the twilight zone and uh 30 Fathom Grave, uh, the next one, episode two of the fourth season. Uh, I remember, I do remember seeing the beginning of this during a sci-fi channel marathon, but I, you know, I was a kid, but I think I got bored and turned it off, and I never really, <laughs> never really finished it. I think I, I, I couldn't, I rewatched it because you covered it on the podcast, we got to it on the podcast here. And I'm like, I don't think I ever finished this episode before. Um, I th- you know, I, I had seen, the, you know, one of the I- iconic Twilight Zone images is the uh, the sailors again in the mirror, you know, uh, beckoning uh, the guy to come back to, to them because he feels like he belongs there. They feel like he belongs there. But, I, yeah, I think I just I don't think I'd ever seen this thing all the way through until uh, watching it for your coverage on the podcast. So, yeah, definitely very repetitive. I mean, they go down, they dive like, literally three times with the main diver and then the fourth time to go down to the submarine and i absolutely agree that i wish they would have spent more time in the submarine that was like the coolest set they had there that the ending needed more of a punch for especially for dragging us on so long and and this one uh, so far definitely definitely reeks of uh extension uh syndrome if you want to call it that with having a half hour story stretched out to an hour because it, look at the scenes we, we dive three times Basically, uh, we have three scenes in the sick bay, which are very similar. Uh, you know, you have two jump scares of the 
the ghosts of the, the sailors on the submarine. So everything here is duplicated, stretched out. We have information given multiple times about, you know, he was in World War II, and then they find his dog tag. So a lot of that going on. But I really did like the main character, the captain, uh, and he's a returning Twilight Zone star, but he's got that you know, 50s, no-nonsense kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I just, I commanded a lot of respect, tough on his crew, big care. Like, he did remind me a lot of, you know, Captain Kirk from the original series of Star Trek. You know, just military man who was tough, but cared about his crew. And, and I felt like, you know, I uh, that that was a, a well-rounded character, I, I thought. So he was probably, my captain was probably my favorite character uh, in this episode. And then Valley of the Shadow, the, the, the episode three of the fourth season. Uh, you know, I liked it. You know, I, I really liked it a lot as well. I had never seen it before until actually, Tom, when uh, when you came on my uh, podcast, Standard Orbit on Trek FM, we talked about uh, main cast members of the original series who had been on the Twilight Zone in starring roles, uh, vice versa. And James Doohan, who played Scotty in Star Trek, was in this episode. A very minor role, right? But he was in it, and he's a main cast member of the original series. So we talked about it. I watched it for that podcast, and I hadn't seen it before. And I really liked it. You know, this one, uh, it goes on a long time, but it, 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 it kind of needs to for them to communicate what they're communicating. So I, I feel like of, of all the ones uh, so far that I'm talking about in this feedback, this one uh, benefits from the hour-long uh, length as well. And the double twist at the end uh, with the actress from Planet of the Apes, who I did recognize, who I think is a beautiful woman, one of my favorite Twilight Zone uh, guest actresses. Uh, she, uh, Her twist that she turned him in at the end, the main character, uh, really, that sold me. Because I was like, this is cheesy. Why is she she's in love with him now? What is this? I don't buy it. And then, of course, it was all part of the plan. Although she had some feelings for him. Uh, I, that kind of made up for the fact that I thought was a really rushed, like, uh, hard to relieve romance between the, the two of them uh, and I'm glad they resurrected the dog at the end I couldn't believe it. I'm like oh my god they killed a dog in 1960s television Come on, I'm a big dog lover here so that shocked me so I'm glad they resurrected him and uh, and there were some good uh, there were some good moral quandaries here in this episode you know uh, like uh, yeah you know they have this incredible technology but they're right when he steal when the main character steals it the first thing he does is make a weapon and shoot people so I mean kind of kind of proves the point of uh, the guys in uh in uh, Peaceful Valley there. So, uh, anyway, yeah, that's, those are my thoughts so far on uh, on Season 4. I know I'm a little behind, so I'm going to stop here, and then I'll be back uh, next time talking about uh, the, ne the next two episodes, uh, 4 and 5, when you do uh, your uh, uh, podcast on the fifth episode of Season 4. But anyway, uh, keep up the great work, Tom, uh, and uh, I'll see you in the fifth dimension. Hi Tom, Chad here with a few thoughts on the episode He's Alive, which is a favorite line from the old 1930s Frankenstein movie with Boris Karloff, so we're off to a good start. Like all of season 4, this was a first time watch for me. One of the most Twilight zone things at work here is that you just covered your final Another Dimension episode over on the Patreon, completing the episodes you didn't personally cover years ago when you took a break, and the the twist of that last episode you covered was that a shopkeeper became greedy and was turned into Hitler. Now, here we are in the current timeline in season four, and we have another episode where Hitler appears in person. In this episode, Hitler is either alive or simply personified in the mind of an American Nazi named Peter Vollmer. The twist of this episode seems to be that the man in the shadows, a blurry man of sorts, who's coaching Peter, turns out to be Hitler. 
This was my least favorite aspect of this episode. It seems clearly to be Hitler the whole time, so I half expected Serling to swerve us by making the shadow fascist into a dark version of the kindly surrogate father Ernst Gantz. Or perhaps he would be a shadow version of Peter himself. Or maybe a demon of some sort. I guess I just felt this show didn't quite have a twist. Where Serling really shines, as always, is in the dialogue, and this episode has it in spades. The line, I didn't choose you, Peter, you chose me, is a standout that really encapsulates the heart of the matter. Recently, someone said that we tend to turn Nazis into monsters because that lets us off the hook for facing the fact that Nazis aren't monsters, they're people just like us. They are us. This episode seems to validate that concept as the townspeople fall for the demagoguery. The brilliant breakdown of how demagogues manipulate people when the shadow man first appears to Peter is a masterclass, and you can see it at work today. I also love the use of Ernst as the heart and soul of Peter and Peter's eventual betrayal and murder of Ernst. Ernst shows the actual courage that Peter lacks when he speaks against Peter in public and faces down Peter's gun before being murdered. This pivotal scene says to me that the murder of kindness makes us monsters. Contrast that death to Peter's death, where his toxic masculine delusion leads him to exclaim that he's really made of steel as he dies, and there's a big juxtaposition. As an aside, made of steel, man of steel, there's a theory that Superman is actually a fascist symbol. Not by design, but the Nietzschean concept of the Ubermensch, translated into English as Superman, predates the comic book character by a couple of decades. Sorry, I digress. It's what I do. All in all, this was a solid episode, and it felt particularly and pathetically familiar to me today. But as Ernst said in the bar scene, I've heard it all before. I've heard it a thousand times before. We've been hearing it for four years on my side of the pond, and the monsters, as usual, are us, here on Maple Street. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. To get in contact, please email tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. To support the show on Patreon and get extra content, please go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. The talented author Richard Matheson pays a return visit to Twilight Zone with a story called Mute. It provides an exceptional challenge to the acting talents of Barbara Baxley, Frank Overton, and an unusual 12-year-old by the name of Ann Gillian. Is she banned? She's alive. Are you all right? She's in shock, Harry. Bad off. Can't talk. Can't cry, can't do nothing. She's not burned, though. How could she get out of that house without being burned? Don't push, children. Be careful. Be careful. I want you to know you're not fooling me for one moment. I know exactly what you are. I know because my father tried to force me into the same thing when I was your age.